Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. Before we get started, I just have to tell you something funny. This shirt that Jordan has on today, black with red roses. Well, here's the deal. I always encourage Jordan to wear that shirt because his wife hates it. And so I think he should wear it every Sunday. What do y'all think? We could just make Jordan. It's just great. Going to be in celibacy for a while, buddy. Hope it was worth it. So uh, my name's Austin. If we haven't met before, I, I probably should have started with that. Um, I'm one of our pastors here at the Vista. And if it's your first time here, if you're new here, we are so glad that you joined us. We know how hard it is to go to a church for the first time. And so we hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, and that you fit right in here at the Vista. Today, we are in the final week of our series called Songs, Finding God in the Music series where we take a page out of Jesus' rhetorical playbook by finding God at work in the everyday rhythms and routines and rituals and joys and sorrows that constitute life as a human being on this big spinning rock called planet Earth. And as many people throughout history have pointed out, um, if you want to know what's really going on in the world, you know, you want to know what people are thinking and feeling and believing, if you want to understand the spirit of the age, then you could listen to the news or read the newspaper, but that is likely to leave you wildly depressed and angry. So instead, you could just listen to the music that we're making because the music that we're making can tell us just about everything we need to know about us in these strange and wonderful times that we live in. And so each week we take a song and we listen to it. We listen to what it's saying, what it's asking, and then we put that in conversation with the Bible to see how that harmonizes and or clashes with Christian faith so that we can understand ourselves and our strange, wonderful times a bit more biblically. That's the idea of the series. Our musician this morning, our final musician for this year's iteration of the song series is, um, well, she's a pretty big deal. She is the best-selling, one of the best-selling, I think, top five musicians uh, in music history. She has been nominated, right? And this is not a typo. She's been nominated for 79 Grammy Awards. Can you imagine being nominated for 79 Grammys? I was nominated for Homecoming Court, and I was unbearable. 79 Grammys. She has won 28 Grammy Awards, more than any other singer in music history. She was recently named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential women of the last 100 years But most importantly, she is yet another native Texan. Born and raised in that dank, humid metropolitan swamp, also known as Houston. Um, It's an ancient blood feud for me. I'm a Dallas boy. Go Maps, go. It goes way back. Uh, We've stepped our game up for our giveaway this week, seeing as how it is the last week of our song series. We're actually giving away a nice little Bluetooth speaker this week, just in time for summer. So if you would like to guess who this week's musician is, I don't see any. Yeah, okay, over here. Beyonce, of course it's Beyonce. Ronnie, I trust your hands. Will you deliver that to her? Yeah. All right. So this week's musician is Beyonce. There's her with her mini Grammys, 25 more of those at home. Um, And the song from her catalog that we have chosen for this week's uh, song is Sandcastles. About four years old, I believe the song is. And it is a very personal, poignant, and really painful song in a lot of ways. Um, It's a song about betrayal and infidelity. It's a song about being wounded most by the people who were supposed to love us the most. Uh, The video for the song features Beyonce and her husband, Sean Carter, also known as Jay-Z. And what I find particularly moving about the video is is knowing that Beyonce and Jay-Z, right, like America's like iconic couple, couple who has everything. 
they have also dealt with infidelity and betrayal in their own marriage, in their own relationship. And few things move me more than seeing a couple being so willing, so brave as to share the wound of their infidelity so that it might become a source of healing and hope for others. All right, so as always, I'm going to read the lyrics to you. you kind of try them on for size, and then we'll watch the video together. Sandcastles by Beyonce. Three very short verses. No chorus even in this song. It says, We built sandcastles that washed away, and I made you cry when I walked away. And although I promised that I couldn't stay, every promise don't work out that way. Dishes smashed on my counter from our last encounter. Pictures snatched out the frame. I scratched out your name and your face. But what is it about you that I can't erase? Well, every promise don't work out that way. And your heart is broken because I walked away. Show me your scars and I won't walk away. And I know I promised that I couldn't stay, but every promise don't work out that way. All right, Sandcastles by Beyonce.
All right, any of you remember the first time that somebody broke your heart? I do. I was in sixth grade. I was in love. I knew that I wanted to marry this girl. And then one day I, I found out that she had been cheating on me behind my back with Justin Timberlake. <laughs> yes, it was Britney Spears. No, she did not know we were in love, but I did. I did. And I was heartbroken, though truth be told, it looks as though I dodged a bullet on that one. Um, as I got older, you know, I experienced more and more severe heartbreak. Um, and man, I've seen a lot of really painful situations over the years as, as a pastor. But there's really nothing that can compare to the pain of marital infidelity. Man, y'all, over the years, I've seen grown men and women, tough, tough as nails, men and women, broken beyond recognition because the person who had made vows to them had betrayed them. And sadly, most people don't survive it. Most couples don't survive it. In fact, only about 15% of couples survive marital infidelity. And we've all been touched by it one way or the other. Every last one of us has. And so I think we can all understand this song on like a, a primal emotional level, can understand this feeling of just wanting to you know, <clears throat> smash everything aside, everything you can get your hands on of, of hating this person that you also love, you know. And I especially like the way the song plays with this notion of promises. Do you pick up on that? You know, it's almost as if she's saying, uh, you promised, you know, you, you made vows to me. You, you promised that you'd be there for me, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor. And I promised that I would walk away if you broke your promises to me. But now I'm going to break my promise to, wake away, to walk away over your broken promise because I have made an even deeper promise. A promise for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. I'm not going to walk away over your broken promise because I've made an even deeper promise to you. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I've always found it interesting. That out of all the metaphors that we must assume God has at his disposal, when God wants to describe to us what his relationship with us is like, one of the primary metaphors that God uses in Scripture is that of marriage. Right? When God wants to explain, hey, this is what this thing between you and me is like, what God often says is, hey, it's kind of like a marriage. It's kind of like we're married, which I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but that's like, it's kind of intense, right, <laughs> that God would use that metaphor. And so does it ever surprise you how much the Bible says that God cares about you? Because don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean to offend anybody this morning. Don't take this the wrong way. But you know, you're just really not that big of a deal. You're not. Maybe you drive a nice car. I just promise you, you're really not that big of a deal. For example, um, here's how big planet Earth is in relationship to the sun. Planet Earth, you know, it's a big place. I don't know if you've ever been around it, traveled around planet Earth. It's a pretty big spot. That's how big it is in comparison to the sun because the sun is just this enormous blazing star up in the sky, right? So unbelievable how small the Earth is where you will live your entire life, where every human will live their entire life in relationship to the sun. Now, here's a picture, though, of something called UY Scooty, all right, the little bright one there in the middle. It's found about 10 years ago through the Hubble telescope. It is the largest known star in the galaxy. And for frame of reference, here's how big it is in relationship to the sun. 1,700 times larger than the sun. The sun, this blazing star that combines you from, you know, like 65 million light years away. It's just this tiny little dust mote, literally one pixel in this image in relationship to the largest known star in the galaxy. 
And yet the most amazing thing is not that mind-bendingly enormous stars like this exist in the universe, but rather, you know, it's that God, y'all, God like, God holds these stars in the palm of his hands. God, God creates galaxies in his free time. When you have free time, you scroll through Facebook or Instagram trying to get some likes. You know what God does in his free time? He creates galaxies in his free time. That God is the infinite creator of space and time. And yet for some reason, God cares so much about you and me. These profoundly frail and fragile little creatures who we shed our skin once a month, we pass gas 10 to 20 times a day, we exist for a nanosecond in the scope of cosmic history. And yet despite all that, and while I understand that, you know, from where you're sitting, the universe literally revolves around you. I don't know if you've noticed. From where you're sitting, the universe literally revolves around you. It is hard to comprehend just how not big of a deal you really are. And so given that, it's quite understandable that, you know, so many modern people think that there's probably a God. Yeah, okay, you know, there's probably a God, but he's probably not very interested in us if he exists, because why would he be? Right? Surely God has better things to do than care about you, your skin shedding flatulent self. Surely the infinite God has more important things to do than care about you. And yet while I understand the sentiment and I've certainly felt it many times myself. Scripture does not allow us to believe that God is indifferent about us. But rather, Scripture relentlessly affirms that God is deeply, profoundly vested in our lives. Because while we most certainly are not a big deal, somehow, someway, it would appear that we are a very, very big deal to God. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea. It's right after Daniel. It's a short little book named after the prophet who penned it. And as we turn there, I'm going to give us a bit of context for the book of Hosea. So it is likely that the primary setting for the book is the mid to late 8th century BCE during a particularly volatile time in Israel's history where unfaithfulness to Yahweh, this Jewish name for God, is rampant in the land. The mighty Assyrian Empire is knocking on Israel's door on the verge of an invasion. If you are at all familiar with the prophetic books. And I know that a lot of our, our men are because our men's Bible studies have been going through the prophetic books this semester. Quick plug for the men's Bible studies. If you want to know your Bible better and get to know some great guys, you ought to check them out. Um, <clears throat> the invasion of foreign nations was typically interpreted by Israel's prophets as God's judgment upon Israel for her unfaithfulness. That's kind of like all the prophetic books. Israel's been unfaithful, so God's going to bring a mighty nation in to discipline the people of Israel. So with this pretty tense setting in mind, let's read now Hosea 1, verses 1 through 9 first. It'll be on here uh, on the screen as well. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Bere, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Laruhamah, 
For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And when she had weaned Laruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to another son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And Hosea 1 Verses 1 through 9. And you probably picked up on this, okay? I probably don't need to tell you this. But um, it's a pretty intense story, isn't it? It's intense. Uh, The people of Israel, they've been unfaithful. And God is very, very, very unhappy about it. And so in a rather dramatic move, God commands the prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute and start a family with her. In this very symbolic action that symbolizes the situation that God is in. Because in wedding himself to the people of Israel in the covenant, God has wed himself to an unfaithful people. And we won't dwell here for long, but but just for a moment. um, Can you imagine being Hosea in this moment? You know, you get that call from the Lord. I don't know how God got a hold of people back then. You know, ring, ring, ring. Uh, Yes, you know, it's Hosea here. And God's like, hey, it's Yahweh. This is the call you've been waiting for, man. (gasps) Yahweh? It's he says, Hosea, your prophet, uh, your wish is my command. I'll do whatever you want. And God's like, well, I'm glad you said that um, because here's the deal. I'm going to need you to marry a, a prostitute and start a family with her in this rather dramatic, symbolic action that symbolizes Israel's unfaithfulness to me. Does that sound good? You got that, Hosea? You imagine Hosea? Uh, new phone, who dis? Uh, Yahweh, you said? I don't know. I don't know Yahweh. But as crazy as it sounds, this is what God asked Hosea to do. And so Hosea, he's a good prophet. He does it. He goes and he marries a prostitute named Gomer, which is just a tough name, man. I mean, good Lord. I don't know the toughest part. I'm sorry if your name's Gomer and you're here. I am sorry that you have that name. Um, and then they gives their children three very unfortunate names as well, like runs in the family. Jezreel, right? And Jezreel was the name of a... Uh, it's a site of a brutal massacre that God was apparently now going to punish the Israelites for. So it'd be like the modern equivalent of naming your kid Chernobyl. You know, you imagine that monogrammed on the back of little Chernobyl's backpack as he goes to school. First day, second name, Laruhama, which means she is not pitied, and of course implies that God will no longer show Israel any pity. And the last name is Loami, which means you are not my people. And I realize that most of you are probably not as skilled as I am in the fine art of marital health discernment. But when I use my uh, pastoral superpowers to read between the lines a bit here, I think I can see some signs that this was probably not a very happy marriage. Like, guys, can you imagine, you know, how your wife would respond if, you know, she found out y'all are having a baby. She found out she's pregnant. She's like, oh, my goodness, where are we going to name the baby? Let's go to brunch. We'll go to Meg's. We'll go to brunch. I've got a long list of baby names. It's a thousand long. I've been putting this thing together for 35 years. I am so excited. And you were like, no, nah, we don't need to do any of that. I got this. God already told me what we're supposed to name our precious little baby boy. God said that we're supposed to name our little man. God will show you no mercy. You imagine introducing him on the playground? Hey, he's so cute. What's his name? Oh. That's God will show you no mercy. Sweet kid. Terrible temper, though. You really don't want to get on his wrong side. And yet, yet, this is what God is asking Hosea to do. It's outrageous stuff. But that is because, to return to what we mentioned earlier, what happens between us and God is apparently a really, really, really big deal to God. And so Israel's unfaithfulness, it wounds God so deeply that it causes God to act out in the most extreme fashion 
imaginable because God wants Israel to understand that her unfaithfulness is not acceptable and it will not be tolerated. And in telling Hosea that his last child is going to be named Lo-Ami, which literally means you are not my people and I am not your God, God is essentially reversing the covenant found in Exodus 6 verse 7, which said, I will take you from my people and I will be your God. In other words, y'all, this is God backing out of the wedding vows he made to the people of Israel. I'm no longer your God. You are no longer my people. And I don't know about you, um, but I find this story both terrifying and yet in an odd way unspeakably comforting. Because it's, it's, it's terrifying to see God willing to act this severely, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, I cannot be the only person in the room who occasionally wonders if God might just, like, give up on me one day. You ever had that thought? I do have these moments where, like, my my own sinfulness is just so clear, and I realize how much of a mess I am that I'm like, God might just cut ties and, like, let's just cut our losses with this one and move on, you know, Son and Holy Spirit. I I feel that way sometimes. Like, I I was recently reprimanded by, by a friend because I had been very rude and condescending to her. And she was right. You know, she called me out on it. She was right. I had no defense, and I felt very remorseful. And I walked away from it thinking, man, God has brought me so far for me to still suck this much. (laughs) Have you ever had that thought? Like, y'all, Jesus has done so much work in my life, and I'm still kind of the worst. You know, so I do. I wonder sometimes that God will just, like, give up on me and be done with me. And so I find stories like this very, very terrifying. They really get my attention. But then on the other hand, I find stories like this unspeakably comforting because they remind me that God is not okay with my relationship with God not being okay. All right? God is not okay with my relationship with God being not okay. God is not content to passively stick it out in an empty, vapid, worthless relationship. Every few months, my wife and I, we have the exact same fight. It's a different fight, but it's always the same fight. Here's how it goes. This will probably sound familiar to you if you're a human. Um, Something will happen, okay? It could be anything. It could really be anything. It's been everything. It could be anything, though. And, um, you know, it's not a big deal to me, but it is kind of a big deal to her. But then it becomes a much bigger deal to her because it's not a big deal to me. Does this sound familiar? At which point the gloves come off, right? And all the standard accusations start getting made. And once all the bullets have been emptied and the smoke clears, what becomes clear is that all she was really trying to say is that she wants to have a great marriage. That's all. Like, not just an okay marriage, not just a tolerable marriage, not just we're roommates, but we live together marriage. She wants to have a great marriage. And although I always find those fights exhausting, I've come to understand that the day she stops fighting for our marriage is a day we are in really, really big trouble, y'all, because that's how most marriages die. They die through nonchalance, people just getting over it. And in the same way, this is an intense passage, and it's meant to get your attention a little bit because... Many of us are pretty, you know, we're pretty nonchalant with our faith. And God, in his enormous generosity, has given you the freedom to be nonchalant about him if you would like. Hey, man, if you don't really care to care that much about God, that's okay. That's your freedom. But do not delude yourself for a moment into thinking that God does not care whether or not you care about God. Don't delude yourself into thinking that God is nonchalant towards your nonchalance toward God, but rather God is relentlessly fully committed to helping you fully 
commit to him, not because he's petty or jealous or whatever, but because God is fully committed to your good. And what's good for you is to be fully committed to God. With that in mind, let's now turn to the end of our story and see how it ends. Hosea 11, we'll read verses 1 through 9 now. Hosea 11, verses 1 through 9. It'll be on the screen as well for you. It says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Right, This is the story of the Exodus. I called my son out of Egypt. Now the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, the false Canaanite god, and burning incense to idols. But it's me who taught Ephraim, that's another name for Israel, to walk. I took them in my arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and I fed them. Now, they're not going to return to the land of Egypt, but they're going to go to Assyria. That's what's going to happen to them. He will be their king because they refuse to return to me. The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the one on high. None at all exalts him. Nobody exalts me among my people. But how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you? Oh, Israel, how can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart, and I love this phrase, is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Because I'm God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Hosea 11, verses 1 through 9. So here in Hosea 11, the metaphor shifts a little bit. And God's relationship with us is now framed in terms of the other most intimate of human relationships. The relationship between a parent and their child. In the first four verses, God's heart is filled with remorse as he talks about how his children, the people of Israel, these children who he led, he fed, he healed, he rescued from slavery in Egypt, they continually just betray him, and God's heartbroken about it. And then in verses 5 through 7, God's remorse, it turns into rage. Do you pick up on it? And God declares devastation upon his people. He says, hey, the sword is going to whirl against your cities. All of your city gates are going to be destroyed. And this evokes the Deuteronomic law from Deuteronomy 21 that stipulated that a parent could have the rebellious children executed if they wanted to. All right, so Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 19 and verse 21. It says, if any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. For what it's worth, I've always found that this is a very helpful memory verse for toddlers. You just put it (laughs) right above the bed. You say it every night. It works wonders. It's a pretty bleak picture, right? right? God is hinting at that law. God's saying, hey, Israel, you remember Deuteronomy 21? Right? Well, well, that's what's about to happen to you, okay? It's a pretty bleak picture. But then in verses 8 through 9, we get this shift. You pick up on it? This, this hint of the good news that will come to be known as the gospel. Right? Having thundered forth these threats of, of devastation, having threatened to break his promises to his people, walk out of their wedding vows, 
It's just, uh, it's as if, and I love the phrase there, it's as if God is like overcome by his own kindness. God says, my heart is overturned within me. Nobody else did this to me. My own heart is so filled with compassion that I've been overwhelmed by my own compassion. It's as if God is overwhelmed by his own faithfulness to his people. And I love the way verse 8 puts it. God's just declared devastation on his people, and he says, but how can I give up on you? (laughs) How am I going to give up on you? Then comes verse 9. I will not execute my fierce anger. Why? Because I'm God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, so I will not come in wrath. In other words, God declares that part of what makes God God and not a human is that God keeps his promises. That's what makes God God. Because God will judge, and God will discipline, but God will never break his promises. Hosea, anticipating the gospel, reminds us that God has always been and will always be faithful to everybody, which means that God will never, ever, ever give up on anybody. And that, that is what makes God, God, and not us. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for the gift of today. We are gathered together, and man, this is a room full of sinners. Sinners who are not a big deal. We're not here for long. We're so small. And yet you tell us that you care about us. Not just a little bit, but a lot. You speak about us and you in these profoundly intimate terms. God, your heart is broken when we sin. And you're made angry, not because you you hate us and you're out for blood or something, but because you are so committed to our good that it breaks your heart to see us pursuing that which is not good. And so we come before you this morning, and Jesus, we just receive that. There are a lot of us in the room this morning who need to be reminded that you have not given up on us, that you will never give up on us, that you will never break your promises. And that's not because of things we bring to the table, it's because of who you are. We are loved because we are loved, not because we are good. And then, Lord Jesus, I pray for those of us who are just, you know, we're pretty nonchalant about this whole thing. God, I pray that we would have something stirred within us, that we would be a little concerned, that we would realize that you are not nonchalant toward our nonchalance. Kindle in our hearts that love, that passion for you. Maybe that we haven't had in a long time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.